From our makeshift home studios in closets around Northern Virginia, I'm Michelle Cordero. And I'm Tim Desher. And this is Heritage Explains. That's the sound of my new reality. Video conference calls. During this period of work from home, if I'm not on one, my husband is, which is tons of fun since schools are closed and the kids are home too. Our kitchen table has been transformed to my husband's new desk. I usually bounce back and forth from a quiet room where I can hide from our four and six-year-old to the living room where I can monitor their activity, answer emails, complete my daily tasks, all while making sure they don't actually kill each other. On top of that, tack on Google Classroom daily assignments. My oldest was smack dab in the middle of learning to read, so we're taking that on too. By 5 p.m., I am multitasked out. You guys, I am dead tired. I've completed the job of a full-time employee, a mother, wife, and teacher. And if I'm being honest, I'm not doing the best job as a teacher. And the day's not done. Someone has to cook dinner and give baths. But I know I'm not alone. Millions of parents across the country are in the same boat. And really, who am I to complain? In March, the economy lost over 700,000 jobs. The U.S. Surgeon General said that this week would be the hardest and saddest for most Americans. We are in the middle of a pandemic. And I am healthy, my family's healthy, and I'm employed. And while my kids are sad that I won't let them go outside and play with their friends, we're still finding joy in each other's company. I pray every day that that doesn't change. And I constantly worry about when this will all end. Before the Chinese virus changed it all, I was up every morning, almost without fail, at 4.25 a.m. To avoid traffic, I would rush into the office and get there by 6 a.m., and I wouldn't stop my day until my 8.30 p.m. bedtime. You can do that as a single guy. Stick to a routine and thrive. But I don't have traffic to beat anymore, and the office I go to is just a few feet from where I wake up and go to bed. Like everyone else in America, I have to adjust to a new life that is far less comfortable than my previous life. As a planner who thrives on a routine, I keep asking myself, when will things go back to normal? It seems by the time it's all over, this new routine will become my old, and the life I had before will be new all over again. It's like my mom said to me growing up when I would get frustrated about change. Honey, life is a series of adjustments. Take them in stride. So let's do just that. It seems like every day we're reminded of how fortunate we are to be an American. Because every day we learn about how Americans are donating time and treasure to help those who lost their jobs 
or American companies stepping up to make masks, gloves, protective gowns, or ventilators. These selfless acts of patriotism are the variables that models cannot calculate, the ingenuity and compassion of the human spirit. But as great as these things are, they don't get us closer to an answer of when will this end. So what do we need to see in order to start getting back to normal? What are the tangibles to look for? What is the data telling us? Jim Carafano is a good friend of Heritage Explains. He's also the vice president of the Heritage's Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy and the E.W. Richardson Fellow. This week, he explains. Dr. Carafano, I am asking a question that I think every American is asking um, their family as they sit down for dinner uh, just like they sat down for lunch and just like they sat down for breakfast since they're all home. And that is, when is life going to return to normal? And I, I think, you know, one of the things that, that you talk about is, is you have to go by data and not emotion. So I want to press in on the data just a little bit. You know, you talk about flattening the curve and doing everything we possibly can to do that. So do you see that working right now? Do you actually see the curve flattening? One of the big differences in, in how we've dealt with this disease over the last few months is increasingly we're, we're coming to understand the disease because we actually have much more reliable data. Many of the initial data we had was came out of China, which had underreported, misreported, uh, really lied to the world about the data they were collecting. And that really, I think, set everybody back a bit. So now we've, we've got two things. One is we've got a lot of uh, very responsible European data, particularly Spain and Italy, but um, increasingly we have our own data. We're, we're actually now probably the world's leader in testing, probably as a percentage of population uh, tested more than anybody uh, else. So every every day we get more information, we, we better understand the disease. So here's what we know for sure. Uh, putting aside what China has said, in virtually every country that's dealt with this disease, it has had a kind of a bow wave. In other words, there's, there's a point where the number of infections begins to slow and decline and with the decline uh, is a decline in the number of people who are infected, the number of people who are in hospital, and uh, and the mortality rate. So we know we know whether we know there's we're going to follow that curve because other countries have as well. The challenge for the United States, of course, is we are a country the size of a continent. So we're not Spain, we're not Italy. Uh, we have we have different demographics than China and other countries. And so the American experience is going to be unique. The other thing we know is uh, our effects to mitigate and deal with disease can have a, a dramatic impact. For example, if you look at the modeling that we have now, um, the mortality rate is sadly kind of tracking with what we anticipated. However, the, the data for the number of hospital beds that would be required and the number of people that we would see going in intensive care is actually much lower than the, the model would have predicted. Uh, does that, is that because the modeling isn't very good or is it attributable to the fact that we're actually mitigating and social distancing and 
responding to the disease a lot better than the assumptions in the model. So here's what we do know. We're not going to ha- see a light switch. We're, uh, everything, everything's going to be terrible one day and fine the next. Uh, we're going to see different regional responses. Uh, and, and even as we go through a cycle, whereas New York, for example, it might, the mortality might come down, the number of cases might come down. Other countries might be at the beginning of, of climbing that, that cycle. So um, everybody is not going to come out of this at exactly the same time. And, and I, I oftentimes hear, yes, like you said, this is the country the size of a continent almost. And and I hear a lot of people who are frustrated with, um, you know, the, the almost the one size fits all kind of model that's being pushed uh, by the federal government. Do you see sort of um, different rules being in place for a New York City versus a Lincoln, Nebraska? Um, or, or are we better off just sticking with a one-size-fits-all for a country the size of a continent? No, I mean, it really doesn't make any sense with a, a, a place that has less than 100,000 infection rate to be doing the kind of mitigation that you're doing in uh, in New York City. Okay. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, it does make sense for state and local governments to kind of make decisions based on where they are, and we're going to see different things. Like I said, New York's coming out of the back end of the curve. Other places might going through the front end of the curve. We have to worry about reinfections. This is something that we've seen in Singapore, in uh, Hong Kong, and in China, whereas you get a level of infections down, but then you reinfect because people come home from abroad and they bring the disease in there. We could see in the United States, people from moving one part of the country to another and bringing the disease with them. So so what are the, what are the signs that we're getting this disease under control so that we, we can begin essentially to turn America back on. And uh, I think there are a couple of things that we can look at that are really important. Um, one is the amount of testing that we're doing and the amount of data that we're collecting. Because as we test and collect data, we can much more focus how we treat the disease. Once we get it under control, for example, or if we have a very low infection rate, then you can do what's really called trace mapping. It's like if you identify, quickly identify a person that's infected because of testing, you can then trace and see who else they contacted and you can do a limited quarantine. It's much, much more efficient and effective. So testing, the, the more rapidly we expand testing, the more we come up with point of care testing, which is essentially testing somebody right at the spot, getting a result in minutes. That's going to make a big difference in what we can do. And you think with the testing where we are right now, are we going to need to do even more testing as this goes on? I mean, is that the goal or are we at a good level right now to collect data that we need in order to uh, move on from this? Well, we're, we're in much better shape than we were uh, just a month ago, but we're going to continue to collect data because this is a disease that's not going to go away. It's a disease that we're going to have to battle likely this year and, and next year, and really until we have an efficacious vaccine or until we have enough immunity across all Americans that is a disease that we can manage much like we manage the flu. So testing is probably gonna play a vital role for a time to come and it's gonna become more ubiquitous and more common. So that's one factor that's gonna enable us to think about how we open up the country again. Here at The Daily Signal, we wanna make sure you have the information that you need to keep yourself and your loved ones safe and healthy. Here's an important message from Dr. Deborah Burks, head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, explaining one of the most important things we can all do to protect our health. 
I think the absolute key point in the guidance for people to remember is staying six feet away from every other human being. What does that mean? Whether you're outside, whether you're, whether you're shopping, whether you have to go to the pharmacy or to the grocery store to get those absolutely essential supplies, that you're staying six feet away from the next person. Ensuring that you know exactly where your hands are, what you've touched, and make sure you're washing them or using hand sanitizer on a regular basis. When you come home, make sure you've disinfected everything that has touched something else. What about the healthcare system? I'm curious about this because um, I see, I, I, I read all these stories that say, hey, you know, um, we're being overrun. We don't have enough beds and things like that. But then I'll hear, see data that say, um, no, actually, we have more people leaving hospitals and going into the hospitals. Where do we stand with the healthcare system right now? Well, th this is another big variable is we have to have the confidence that the disease won't overwhelm the medical system. Mm. And there are two ways to really address that. One is to significantly reduce the rate of infection. So if you look at Washington State, for example, they've done a really good job of mitigating through social distancing and other measures. Disease is much more under control. Their healthcare system now has the confidence to manage uh, people that might have to go into the hospital. In fact, they actually gave ventilators, which are crucial. If somebody gets very, very ill and they get pneumonia, you need a ventilator to help them breathe they've actually reduced their caseload so much that they're actually giving ventilators back to the United States government so that we can move to other places. So having the capacity of medical care, both through reducing the number of people who are infected and increasing the capacity of hospitals to deal with it, not just ventilators, but other medical equipment, including personal protective equipment, the masks, the gowns, the gloves, that, that's another uh, crucial factor as well. Yeah, Dr. Carafano, I'm curious about when, when we talk about medicines. Now, we have there is no vaccine right now, and there won't be for a long time. There's got to be trials. There's got to be all we, we have to find it, first of all. But you also talk about so-called therapeutics. And I'm wondering if you can explain to me the difference and, and why therapeutics are important in helping us move on from this, even though we don't have a vaccine. Well, think of it in terms of an arsenal, right? So a vaccine is something that essentially makes your body, the, you may, the disease may come to you, but you don't get sick, right? That's a vaccine because your body, the vaccine has stimulated a natural immunity that enables you not to catch the disease, whether it's uh, measles or the flu, or in this case, the coronavirus. And you're right, uh, even the most optimistic people think a vaccine is, is probably you know, several months to a year off to go through all the testing and validation and everything else. But think of it as an arsenal. Think of, think, of, think of a vaccine as the nuclear weapon, that if you drop it on the enemy, we're done here. Uh, but then it, without a nuclear weapon, you can still win wars if you have an arsenal of capabilities. And, and in the military, that's a tank and an aircraft carrier and you know an infantry guy and a machine gun. In the medical world, it's a range of things, uh, including uh, what are called therapeutics. In other words, you get sick, but we have ways to mitigate your illness so you're less contagious more quickly, so you don't get as sick, so you don't have to go into the emergency route. Hmm. Uh, so therapeutics, or in this case, antivirals, in other words, drugs that that kill or suppress the virus. Uh, you hear a lot of them, a lot of the discussion about that. Uh, as we find ones that are efficacious and treatments that bring them on board, uh, those, those, will, those will help us deal with the disease. The other one's called prophylaxis, which are ways, uh, 
to keep you from getting the disease to begin with. And they're not just medicines. Uh, so for example, um, if you could use, airplanes use ultraviolet to disinfect the planes, so to kill the plane, so they know there's no virus on the plane before the people come on board. Um, other things, you know, washing your hands is probably the most, the most uh, common one. But as, as we develop and deploy a more robust arsenal of therapeutics and prophylaxis and other ways to deal with the problem, then again, that gives us another set of tools that allows us to think about opening up. So I'd like, instead of thinking about a date when, thinking of the ways we could open up. So we could open up regionally. So for example, you, you wouldn't want to open up Washington, D.C., for example, and have the disease raging in Virginia and Maryland. Hmm. But maybe as a region, uh, if you had, uh, you've crested the curve, you have a low infection rate, you might open up regionally. You might open up by sector, find ways to get individual sectors kind of engaged in the economy. We do that now through the disease. We have sectors that are still operating. Truckers are still on the road. Grocery chains are still working. Uh, and another way we might do that is uh, 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 by capabilities. In other words, you might start to deploy capabilities that may allow people to come back to work. Uh, so, for example, Amazon is already looking at ways to check employees so that when they come to work in the day, they can assure they're healthy and they can go in, whether it's taking your temperature or doing a point of, of service test. We, we might gain, as if we have more robust arsenal, we might be able to do it by demographics. So we might, for example, let, um, you know, say younger people who are uh, less susceptible to getting seriously ill uh, go back. But, but, and this is, I think, important for people to understand, when we're making decisions about opening the country back up and getting this economy rolling again, uh, it's not just about dealing with this because the disease can come back. Um, you could go to zero infections and have people come and bring the disease back, or it might act like a, a seasonal flu and resurge in the fall. I was wondering, can you see this, just picking up on that, can you see us opening everything back up, going down, everything's great, Jubilee is here, and then it hits again, and then do you see us just shutting down again just a few months uh, later down the road or a year down the road kind of a thing? There's an awful precedent, I feel, that's been set in this, well, we've got to shut everything down kind of a thing. Or are we putting these things in place where we'll be ready for it next time where we don't have to shut down? Yeah, I would think that next time around we'll, we'll be a lot better prepared. And you have to remember this. We, we really came into the, not just blind into dealing with disease, but, but in many ways – lied to um you know, we were actually told that the disease initially didn't didn't wasn't communicable from person to person um not only was it communicable from person to person it's actually very very highly contagious and so we started fighting this disease not knowing a lot of correct information about what we were fighting so not only do we know the disease much better now because of all the data we have we're going to have a much more robust arsenal in place to deal with it. And that, that I think is allow us to, to battle handle it next, next time around. But we have to think about that because again, opening up the country is not just about getting through the bow wave and then going back to work. We have to have the system in place to, to manage this disease until, like I said, either we have a very broad based immunity among, among people. So we don't have to worry about it or we have a, a vaccine and, and we have a, a a significant percentage of the population vaccinated. So again, it doesn't become something that's 
overwhelming to the country. Yeah, you mentioned that we were lied to, and that's a perfect segue into my next question, which has to do with China. And I'm telling you, Dr. Carafano, every interview that that I have done on this show in the last, I don't know, uh, 18 weeks has had something to do with China meddling or interfering in something. So I'm not surprised here. Um, We just learned beginning of last week that China was Uh, They were not truthful about reporting. They continue to be spotty about reporting. Is there a way of holding them accountable for this? I mean, it seems like a lot of the world has eggs in that China basket there, and they're being led astray. So how do we hold them accountable? How do we make sure that that what happened to us and them doesn't happen to anybody else? Well, I actually think the United States is, is going to be in a stronger position globally coming out of the pandemic, I think we're going to come through it better than, than uh, almost anyone. And, uh, and I think it's actually going to put us in a stronger place in dealing with China. Uh, first of all, uh, we're, our, our, our economy is going to rebound. We, we, are, we were and we will continue to be the global leader. I like to remind people that they constantly talk about the World Health Organization. The United States gave $400 million to the WHO last year. China gave $40 million. Wow. I mean, the United States gave more than twice the next largest member. China gives actually very, very little real foreign aid. They actually contribute very in a very minor way to international organizations. So the United States, put all the rhetoric aside, the United States really is the global leader, and, and I believe it will continue to be. But China's not in a very good position here. It, it lied to the world. Uh, a lot of people are deeply resentful, deeply angry at China. So the China brand is way down. Uh, China's own economy took a pretty significant hit from this disease. Uh, they need to engage with the world. They need to export. They need to have access to American markets. So I think the United States goes into this in a, in a this new round of confrontation in a position of strength. Remember, this is a president that's already very willing to be tough on China. So I, I actually think it's going to be advantage USA coming out of yeah, you you mentioned the president, and and I'm I'm wondering. I mean, you have observed so many leaders. Um, you've served our country um, so so valiantly, and I, I thank you for your service and and all that you do. And and my question to you is: in watching the leadership during this crisis, this as you know, we're battling a invisible enemy, as Trump says here. Um, how is how do you feel like um, he as a leader is taking this uh, challenge on? Well, I like to remind people of two things. One is strategic leadership is rhetoric and action. It's what you say and what you do. And to really understand a leader, you have to look at both. If if FDR gave a great speech on on uh, December 7th, day in infamy, but if we hadn't actually gone and fight in one World War II, nobody would remember that speech. And I think what, what tends to happen with the president's critics is they tend to fixate on the rhetoric and critiquing it cherry picking it sometimes, distorting it, and then actually ignoring what the president actually does. So it's a very incomplete picture of presidential leadership. If you look at both, uh, I think the administration's actually done quite well, which really gets to the second point is, you have to grade this administration and the president on how they responded at the time and what they knew. We have a lot of people who are going back and saying, well, they should have bought a lot more medical equipment. Well, when they said we should have done this months ago, months ago, we didn't even have a model 
that would suggest how much medical equipment we even needed. Right. Or we or even understood the disease and really understood the kinds of medical equipment that we might have needed. So I think it's, it's easy to, you know, Monday morning quarterback and project back months ago and say, oh, we should have done this and should have done that. Because you're grading the person on the knowledge that you have today. If you're going to critique what a leader did, you have to go back to that time and place and gauge them on the information that was available and the knowledge that they had at the time. And I think if you actually look at the U.S. response, it actually tracked with what the data, what the science, and what the experts were saying. And yeah, we could have had a more robust response earlier. That really would have been predicated on the China being much more honest and straightforward with the world on the nature of the disease and what it was doing. I can't really overemphasize how irresponsible the Chinese were, really in two respects. One is really on, on not being straightforward about the nature of the disease. But the other is, uh, during the Chinese New Year, literally millions of people went back to China to celebrate with their family and friends. They all left the country wow. after Chinese New Year at a point when the Chinese knew, when the Chinese Communist Party knew the disease was highly contagious and it could be extremely lethal. And so essentially for months, China was exporting the disease knowingly. And, and, and that really is what has triggered the global pandemic. Well, this is a very, very serious ever-evolving issue and it and it's really good to kind of boil it all down beyond the rhetoric to to kind of get to when life can return to normal and there's a long way to go but i really appreciate you dr carafano going uh through it with us uh this week so uh stay healthy okay well thanks for having me and that's it for another episode of heritage explains it was nice to do this episode together and let you know what we've been up to but we want to hear about you. How are you doing? How's your routine changed? Are you and your loved ones well? It was great to see the response last week, so please keep them coming. Email us at managingeditor at heritage.org. We love hearing from you, now more than ever. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode on why Medicare for All is not the solution to the coronavirus. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad.